Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode 84 of ADHD for Smartass Women. In this episode, I am going to introduce you to Nicole Damasi Malcher. Nicole is the founder of Damasi Nutrition, a virtual private practice based in Los Angeles, California. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified diabetes educator with a master's degree in nutrition and has over 10 years of experience in the health and wellness field in various areas of nutrition. She has worked at Los Robles Hospital in the ICU and as a nutrition coach at UCLA, Kaiser Permanente, and DaVita Dialysis. In her practice, she uses nutrition therapy and coaching to help people lose weight, improve their health, and prevent and treat medical conditions through personalized diet and lifestyle changes. Nicole was diagnosed with ADHD combined type about a year ago at the age of 32, and since then has been determined to understand how nutrition impacts ADHD symptoms. Whoa, did I get all that right, Nicole? (laughs) Yes, you did. (laughs) That was a mouthful. Welcome. Thank you. You here? Me too. I'm so excited. So, of course, I want to talk about ADHD and nutrition, but before we do that, can we get to know you first? Can we talk about your ADHD? Yes, we can. So you were diagnosed about a year ago? That's right. So you're fairly new to the diagnoses. Can you tell us what were the circumstances around your ADHD diagnoses? Um, You know, I had known that I had trouble concentrating my whole life, but it really started to be an issue in one of my last jobs where that really challenged my executive functions. It was the organizing, the planning, just, you know, feeling like everything else was so much harder for me than it was for everyone else. And I knew that I was smart and I could get things, but I just seemed like I was so much more stressed out and not being able to organize and plan the same way that other people could. So I just Googled, why can't I concentrate? And I actually came to an article from Attitude Magazine And I read it and I was like, oh my God, 
this is me, like to a T. I felt like I could have written the article. And I just started bawling my eyes out because I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like there's other people like me, people that think the way I do. And there's a reason for it. And so I kind of self-diagnosed myself. That was about two years ago, actually. And then about a year went by and I had known that I had it, but I didn't really do much about it because I was so busy, unfortunately. But then I went to therapy about a year ago and my psychiatrist was like, yeah, you definitely have it. <laughs> and I went through all the symptoms with her, you know, basically every symptom on the list I could definitely relate to. <laughs> so Nicole, did you know what ADHD was before that or... Were you like me where you thought, oh, it meant you were slow. It meant you weren't very smart. It meant you were totally hyperactive and climbing the walls. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I was confused about it because everything that I had seen growing up and the advertisements about it, it all related to children and hyperactivity. And so I didn't fit that mold at the time. I mean, I'm, you know, hyperactive in certain situations, but it's more, I think I, I lie heavily more on the inattentive where my mind is very hyperactive. And so I was like, this isn't me because I don't fit that mold. But then when I started looking further into it, it just made sense. So when you were a kid, do you see some of the symptoms in your childhood? You must. Oh yeah. Now I do. I didn't know what it was at that time, but now looking back, it totally makes sense. Like in school, I was just, I never paid attention. I did if it was interesting. Like if I had a teacher that was really interesting and engaging and she was, you know, he or she was fun, I'd be okay. And I'd do really, really well in that class. But otherwise I would just be gazing around. I would ask to go to the bathroom so that I could just walk around the school. I just felt like different from other people and I couldn't figure out why. So I definitely noticed, especially into my teens, you know, it took me a while to kind of grasp things sometimes. And I just didn't feel like sitting in class. I did well in school, which is why nobody ever noticed it. Like I would go to the guidance counselor and tell them that I was anxious and I just didn't feel like sitting in class and I didn't know why. But I think now I feel like it was just because I couldn't sit that long and that's what was causing my anxiety. And so now just looking back, all the symptoms make total sense. What about relationships? In a way, <laughs> I think with my past relationships, yes, like before I, I knew that I had it. I just would get bored easily, like close relationships with like a boyfriend or something. I would feel like I need to constantly be doing something. And I think that that maybe put a lot of pressure on the other person to like constantly entertain me because I always wanted to be doing something. And now that I realize it and what it is, I can kind of, you know, scale that back a little bit and also take the time to be on my own and do the things that I want to do versus relying on that other person for that dopamine rush of, or, you know, feeling like I always need to do something all the time. I don't know well, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And we were just talking about how once you know why everything becomes so much easier because then you understand that there's not something wrong with you, right? You understand mm -hmm. why you're doing what you're doing and then you can build workarounds. So yeah, this makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. It's definitely 
become a lot more evident now. I'll be doing something and I'll, I just have an aha moment and like, oh my gosh, that's why I just did that. <laughs> that's why I do that all the time. It's honestly been so life-changing and I wish that I had found out sooner, but that's okay. That's why I am <laughs> where I am today, I suppose. So, Well, and you're still so young. You're a baby, Nicole. <laughs> so what has changed since you were diagnosed? It's all still pretty new to me. I guess I feel more relieved that I know what it is. And I'm learning why I do things. So that has given me a lot more self-compassion. Just to say, like, there's nothing wrong with you. You do this because this is how your brain is wired. And so I used to beat myself up so much about things. Like not being able to do something as quickly or as well as someone else. And I do get there eventually, but sometimes it just takes me a little bit longer. So now I'm just a little bit nicer to myself and I can laugh when I do things instead of freaking out that maybe there's something wrong with me. (laughs) So definitely a lot nicer to myself. And then also me and my husband, our relationship has gotten so much stronger because he understands why I do certain things and he's able to help me when I feel stuck on something. And so that alone has just made things so much easier. I hear that all the time around relationships, marriages. Once both parties to the couple understand why, you know, what it is, they both just kind of back off on each other, right? Because I'm sure your husband now sees, okay, she's not doing this on purpose. This is just how she's wired. You know, she's not (laughs) trying to be a jerk. She's not trying to goad me. Right. (laughs) Okay. So, Nicole, can we talk now about food? diets, nutrition. But before we do that, I want to say that research shows that those that struggle with obesity are five to 10 times more likely to have ADHD. You know, there's also a link, and I did a whole podcast on this. There is also a link between eating disorders, ADHD, and girls. There are so many reasons why this might be the case. You know, our dopamine levels are lower, so supposedly eating sugar and carbohydrates triggers the rush of dopamine. We eat for stimulation. We eat to feel better. There's something called RDS, reward deficiency syndrome, which Mm -hmm. is basically a disconnect in the brain reward cascade. And if you want to know more about this, I talk about it in episode 21, where I go into much more detail. But today, we are not talking about women with dysregulated eating. So if that's you, please turn off this podcast. Okay. (laughs) So my big question on food, diet, nutrition. I want to know about the science behind what we eat. So apparently, if we eat sugar and carbohydrates, we are triggering more dopamine. But I have to tell you that I don't think that's true for me at all. When I eat sugar and simple carbohydrates, when I eat crap, I feel sluggish and slow, not just in my body, but also in my brain. Now, I will admit that when I was a kid, I ate so much candy (laughs) and my dad was a dentist. So what I want to know is, are there actually certain foods? Are there certain food groups, you know, proteins versus carbs that do actually affect dopamine levels, that affect our focus, that affect our energy, that affect how bored we are or can be? Yes, there is. And it's different for everyone. As you know, like, no one person with ADHD is the same and it is on a spectrum. So you might have different levels of dopamine than I have and vice versa. So foods might affect you differently. And also 
we can get into a little bit later if we have time, but there's a lot of people that have allergies or sensitivities to certain foods like gluten or wheat and soy and dairy and all these other things. So if you're eating a lot of these certain foods, they can actually make you feel sluggish if you have a sensitivity to them. So separate from ADHD, right? So you can have ADHD and also have this problem. Well, yes, but it's also, there's an increased association between the number of people with ADHD and food sensitivities. So there's possibly a link. But first to answer your question. So the reward circuit in the brain is very complex, obviously. I'm going to simplify it as much as I can. Dopamine is released by the brain in the reward center, right? So when you eat food, like let's say you eat a piece of cake, dopamine is released and it tells your body, this was good, let's do it again. So that's your natural response to pleasurable stimuli. So it's the same thing for social interactions, certain drugs, stimulants, things like that. They all release dopamine, but it's activated at different degrees. So it's going to be different for everyone. So when that happens, your reward is that feeling of happiness or euphoria. So you eat the cake, it feels good. Your body says, this was pleasurable. I'm going to remember everything about this. So I'm going to do it again. (laughs) And as dopamine goes up, serotonin actually goes down. And serotonin is responsible for our mood, right? So if your dopamine is constantly going up and your serotonin is going down, it makes sense that then... You have this feeling of euphoria, but then you have this decreased satisfaction. And so your body says, I'm going to do this again. And so you have another bite and then you're less satisfied and then you take another bite. (laughs) And of course, it depends on the person. Some people can take one or two bites of something and be totally satisfied. But in terms of, you know, when you get into things like food addiction, that reward pleasure circuit in the brain just isn't functioning properly. There's some type of miscommunication between those neurotransmitters. And that's that reward deficiency syndrome that we're talking about that is, you know, very common with ADHD. Yes, exactly. And that's so interesting what you just said about how that first bite is really good. And so you want more of that first bite feeling, right? So you keep having bite two, bite three, but it gets lower and lower. Yes. Good, right? Exactly. So are there certain foods or food groups that actually do affect dopamine levels? Yeah, there are. So one of the biggest things is protein. So protein is really important to create dopamine in the body. And that's because... Protein is made up of amino acids, and amino acids are the precursors to create dopamine in the body. And so if we don't eat enough protein, we're not going to be able to make enough dopamine. While most Americans actually get way too much protein in our diets, if you think about how much you know the average American eats in terms of like steaks and burgers and stuff like that, but it's the amount of protein that you have throughout the day in small amounts that can really make a difference, especially starting off with breakfast. So dopamine is that feel-good neurotransmitter. We want to increase it by eating the right foods. So the way to increase it really is by eating enough protein throughout the day, specifically foods rich in tyrosine, which is an amino acid found in protein. 
And I don't want you to go and eat a ton of, you know, like steak and burgers and all these things in your diet. It's really just about getting the right amount. Most people do get enough, but again, we want to make sure that you're eating a balanced diet. If you have just a few ounces with each meal, that's usually enough. And a few ounces is really small, actually. It's about the size of a deck of cards. It's a pretty small amount. It depends on your body size. If you're someone like me who's like teeny tiny, I'm only five feet tall, I can get away with having just three ounces at each meal. If you're a little bit taller, you might need four ounces or even five ounces with each meal. It just depends on the person. But these foods that are recommended are going to be things like fish. And I recommend the fatty fish always because you get the added benefits of the omega-3s and vitamin D, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Salmon, trout, sardines, and then also soy is a good source of protein. And it's a complete protein, which means it has all the amino acids. So if you're someone who doesn't really like to eat meat or if you're on a vegetarian diet, soy is a good option. So tofu and tempeh. Nuts and seeds are also really great. Um, Beans, lentils. And then, of course, if you want to eat some chicken, turkey. Um, Red meat, I tend to recommend people avoid just because it has an increased risk of inflammation in the diet. Chicken and turkey do not. Well, all animal protein, they're finding, can increase the risk of inflammation, but it's mostly the red meats that are linked to it, and especially the processed meats, so things like bacon and foods with nitrate, so that would be like your deli meats and sausages and that type of stuff. So if you can find them nitrate-free and really good quality, I'd say it's okay to have them just once in a while, but those are going to be your really expensive options that you'd find at like Whole Foods. So it's best to just use something that's less processed like chicken breast or even ground turkey. Turkey actually has a lot of tryptophan as well, which is helpful to make serotonin. So the other thing is fava beans. Do you know what fava beans are? Yeah. Well, I cook a lot. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. So fava beans actually naturally have L-DOPA, which is a precursor to dopamine. (laughs) You can add a half a cup of those um, to like a salad or put them on the side of your meal. If you want to add a little extra protein, those are a great option. They'll also add extra fiber. Just don't eat them raw because they can make you sick. Um, Not that you would. And then people who have favism disease actually cannot break them down. So if you have favism disease, it's not very common, but you want to avoid it. Also, if you have carbohydrates, you do want to make sure that you have high fiber carbohydrates like we talked about before. Adequate consumption of carbohydrates is really essential for brain function. It's actually your brain's main source of energy. So your body prefers carbohydrates and it requires about at least 25% of your total energy. And most diets are about 50% of calories from carbohydrates. So this is so interesting to me because I will tell you that probably the food group that I care least about is protein. (laughs) I eat some fish, I'll eat beans, I'll eat nuts, but I am not a meat person. I just don't crave it at all. Again, I think it was how I was raised. You know, I'm half Japanese. And so we would have one little filet of steak and it would be chopped up and put in with a bunch of vegetables. So much of it, I think, is, you know, is how we're raised. And then 
what we think is good and what we like. Mm -hmm. So you were saying, okay, you need quite a bit of protein at each meal. And then you need to combine that with high fiber carbohydrates. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And then what about vegetables? That's extra. So the easiest way to think about building a healthy plate is to do a quarter of your plate protein, a quarter of it, your high fiber carbs, and then half of your plate should be low carbohydrate vegetables. Most of us are not getting enough vegetables at all. And it's funny that you, you said that about being Japanese because the Okinawa people that live like some of the longest lifespan in the world, their diet's typically only 9% protein and like 85% carbohydrates. So from what a lot of the studies show is that a lower protein diet, higher carbohydrate and, you know, higher carbohydrates that are rich in like high fiber and a lot of nutrients tends to work. But because the ADHD brain does need a lot more neurotransmitters, a little extra protein is helpful. And so you have to be cautious because it depends on the person. If you're somebody that has a kidney disease or another disease that requires you to maybe limit your protein a little bit, then you would want to make sure that the diet's, you know, going to have the right amount of macronutrients for you, which is your protein, carbs, and fat. And that's when you really should see a dietitian, especially because you have a couple different things going on. But for most people, three to four ounces of protein with each meal is going to be just enough. Well, and the easy thing that I've done is, you know, I'll go to like Trader Joe's and I'll buy the almonds in the little packages. Mm-hmm. And I just have them in my bag. I have them in my car. I have them everywhere. So when I feel like I need to eat something because, well, we're going to go into something else that I do that I know you're going to, you're going to get on me for, but <laughs> you know, when I'm crashing, I know that I always have those almonds there and that would be like the protein, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be meat or fish or beans or, you know, something warm, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. There's always something that you can just kind of grab and it's quick. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So almonds are something that I always recommend. Walnuts are actually great because walnuts are also high in omega-3s. You can do any type of nuts and seeds, really. I would just make sure that you're portioning it out because if you eat right from the bag, we tend to not realize what we're doing, right? And so that those can really extra calories can really add up quickly. So one of the things I usually recommend to people is when you buy that large bag of walnuts or almonds or whatever it is, portion them out into small baggies so that you have them ready to go. And you can keep one in your car, you can keep it in your purse, you know, wherever. That way you always have something healthy to snack on. And I personally don't eat a lot of meat. I eat mostly vegetarian diet. So my Protein is usually nuts and seeds, and um, I do eat a little bit of dairy, so I'll have some Greek yogurt, maybe like half a cup of Greek yogurt, but I always add nuts in it and also fresh berries to get a lot of the antioxidants from the berries. So anything that's colorful is going to have a lot more nutrients in it than something that's just, you know, plain white, for example. Okay, so you just brought up dairy. (laughs) And I'm going to digress here. What do you think about dairy? I mean, I have read so much conflicting, you know, information, and I'm now kind of on the side that it's really not that healthy for us. Mm -hmm. There's so much conflicting information. Um, I avoided it for a long time because, you know, 
there's been studies that show there's a lot of hormones in it. And it's just been shown to also increase inflammation. And it's been shown to cause a lot of sensitivities to people. And it's one of the main allergens that people can be allergic to. So if you're not sure if you're allergic to something, you can do what's called an elimination diet. And it takes a lot of work. So an elimination diet is basically cutting out anything that could possibly cause an allergy. So it's kind of like a hypoallergenic diet. The problem is that sometimes, depending on what the allergy is, you can actually be allergic to those first few foods that you're eating. So you really have to monitor your symptoms and you have to be really, really strict because if you have a true sensitivity or a true allergy to something, the symptoms might actually not show up for a few days later. And that's because it takes some time to go through your digestive tract. So you really have to you know, keep track of your symptoms, look at every single label, not have anything you know, that's outside of your plan. And again, it sounds intense because it is, but it's so important. Once you figure that out, your symptoms can improve dramatically. So what you would do is have, you know, a small amount of food that you can have uh, on your plan. And then you would gradually add in one new food every few days and see if it causes symptoms. And so there's a difference between a sensitivity and an allergy. An allergy means that your body actually has an immune response. So you might have hives or you might have some trouble breathing. It can be a true allergy. A sensitivity might cause like some GI upset, like you might have some gas or bloating, constipation or diarrhea. That can be a sensitivity to it. It can also cause issues with brain fog and things like that. So there's differences. And then there's an intolerance. And intolerance is basically like lactose intolerance. So if you have lactose and your body doesn't have the enzyme to break it down, it can cause diarrhea. But if you have dairy and you take the lactase enzyme, which helps break down the lactose, then you're more likely to be able to eat it because you're not going to have issues. So it, it depends on what it is. It's got to be diagnosed as either a sensitivity, intolerance, or an allergy. They're very different. And are there tests that you can just take to figure out mm-hmm. what it is? You can, but they're not as accurate. There are different tests that you can take. And sometimes you're, you know, they'll, a lot of times they're not covered under insurance. Sometimes they are, you have to ask your doctor, but I would go to a GI doctor and see if they can do some type of testing. Again, sometimes the blood tests are not as accurate. You can get a lot of false positives. And there's also certain foods that can mimic other things when you eat them. So it can cause a similar response. Like for example, if you're allergic to ragweed, you know, seasonally and you eat bananas, eating bananas can actually cause the same response as your allergy to ragweed because your body recognizes it as the same type of protein in the body. That's insane. I know. It's so interesting. So so some doctors will say to not eat certain foods at certain times of year based on your seasonal allergies. Oh my gosh. I've never heard that. That is incredible. (laughs) It's insane. Um, And of course, we'd all go crazy if we had to think about all this stuff. But if it's something that's really affecting your life, it's worth trying. So 
that's why I say, you know, if you have the extra time and maybe right now during quarantine, it might be a little bit easier for some people, depending on your situation, because, you know, you, you can control what you're eating if we're not back to work yet. But you could definitely do that elimination diet and just just see if you have symptoms. I mean, it's not going to hurt to cut things out of your diet for a month. You just don't want to do it long term because then you might be running into the risk of having nutritional deficiencies, which can then, you know, further increase the risk of low dopamine. There's a certain vitamins and minerals that you need to help make dopamine. Okay. So, okay. The last thing I want to talk to you, well, there's two more things. We better get going here. We're already at 48 minutes. Um, okay. Intermittent fasting. Now, I have always hated to eat breakfast. I remember my dad was all about milk. Like if you don't eat milk, you're not going to grow. And like you, I'm like five, two on a good day. (laughs) Um, So I don't think it even, you know, I don't even think it was true, but he would literally, when I was a teenager, when I was, you know, driving, he would sit there with the car keys in one hand and a glass of milk in the other. And I wouldn't get the car key until I drank the milk. And it was even worse because we drank powdered milk because he read somewhere that that was more nutritious. (laughs) It was disgusting with the lumps and all that stuff in it. (laughs) So, you know, it was because I refused to eat breakfast. And so that was my breakfast is I at least had to drink milk. I have always hated breakfast. I am not hungry in the morning. I can literally go until, you know, two o'clock and be perfectly fine and feel really good. And in fact, I do feel like my brain is clearer. It's not foggy. I'm much more, you know, just on top of things when I don't eat, when I'm a little bit hungry. And so I discovered this intermittent fasting (laughs) and I just love it because I know, number one, that it does reduce inflammation. I've heard all kinds of stories about people turning their type two diabetes around and I guess it's, you know, for the ADHD brain, I have so much more control because there's a bit bright line. I know that I eat six hours during the day. And when my six hour window, I'm not doing it right now. And I feel like I need to get back on it. But I feel like once my six hour window is done, I cannot eat anymore. And my biggest problem is eating at night, that snacking where you're just, you know, you're not eating things that are particularly good for you and you're not even hungry. It's just kind of this mindless eating. And so that with intermittent fasting, I feel like that's how I control not only my weight, but also how I feel. And I know you're going to tell me something else. So go for it. No, it, it okay. That makes sense. So, and that's why intermittent fasting, it doesn't work for everyone. If it's really hard to follow, then it's not the diet for you. I typically don't put people on diets because I don't want people to ever feel like, They need to eat a certain way in order to be healthy all the time, if that makes sense, just because then you feel like you're restricted again. And restricted eating, you know, you always end up gaining the weight back or going back to your old habits when you're restricted. So you have to be really careful on, you know, how you approach these things and also just checking in mentally to make sure that you're doing okay. So with that being said, I mean, There's so many different types of intermittent fasting. So you can alternate between shorter periods of eating and fasting, usually between 12 to 24 hours. But there's different types. So like there's the 16-8, which is called time-restricted feeding. Um, (laughs) So you fast for 16 hours and eat for eight hours. So basically, you'd often skip breakfast and then eat somewhere between noon and 8 p.m. So it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. I do 18-6. 
Okay. And 16 is really easy for me. Mm-hmm. Again, because I, you know, I'm just not hungry for most of the day. Yeah. 18.6 is harder. Yeah. It's definitely harder. It's it's a longer time. I mean, if you think about we've been fasting for thousands of years. It's nothing new. It's just that food is way more readily available to us now. I mean, think about it. Back in the day, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have food all the time just waiting for them. They were hunter and gatherers. When you find your food, you eat it, and then you have to wait until you find your next meal. So biologically, those processes have made us stronger and people have actually had to live in ketosis for a long time and that's what kept them alive. But now that we have all these foods available to us, we're more likely to snack, right? Because we want that dopamine rush or because we're bored or because we're tired or because we're lonely or whatever it is. We snack for a lot of reasons, right? People eat for a lot of reasons other than hunger. So with intermittent fasting, if you're saying that you need something like a schedule, it really helps to take the guesswork out of when you're supposed to eat and that schedule, right? So it's kind of helping you a little bit there. And also because you're not hungry in the morning, it's a little bit easier for you. But if you're somebody who's used to eating breakfast and you get kind of lightheaded when you don't eat, or you tend to feel, you know, a little bit sluggish, then it might not work for you. And they're finding that if you restrict the eating later into the night, that is going to show the best results. So it's better to start, you know, eating your breakfast in the morning and then fast for longer in the evening. Um, so and that just might kill me, Nicole. <laughs> I don't think I can do that. I read that. Like if you start your eating at 10 a.m., and then, you know, six to eight hours later, you stop. Oh, my God, you'd be like stopping eating at what, like four? <laughs> yeah. And that's why I have to also say, like, I don't typically recommend fasting to people. It can help with weight loss if you're somebody who tends to snack at night. And basically, my rule of thumb is only eat between breakfast and dinner. Don't eat after dinner. Yeah. Because that late night snacking tends to be things that are high in calories, things that are kind of, you know, a little bit high in salt, not really so healthy. If you didn't eat much during the day and you're starving at nighttime, I say, you know, eat. It's okay. Like you have to give your body what it needs. But if you're eating for reasons other than hunger, then it might work for you. Just so that you can have that in your mind, like, okay, I'm not going to eat after this time. I can do it. I'm okay. And then it might kind of stop that habit of eating at night that you used to have. And you might feel like, oh, well, I'm actually okay after dinner. I'm not actually hungry. I was just eating out of habit. So those are some of the reasons why I would recommend intermittent fasting. Research also shows that it can help with longevity, which means it can extend the lifespan but you have to do it right. You can't just, you know, eat as many calories as you possibly want, (laughs) as you can possibly eat in a short amount of time and then expect results. It's got to be still healthy foods. Typically following a Mediterranean style diet can help. So like, you know, high in fatty fish, high in high fiber foods, fruits and vegetables and olive oil and 
all those types of healthy foods along with the intermittent fasting can really help. But again, you're still getting the right amount of calories. There are certain fasting diets that I've seen that are really extreme where you would fast 24 hours one day and then the next day you eat whatever you want. And then you fast again for 24 hours and then you eat whatever you want. That to me just sounds insane. I would probably be the most miserable person on the planet if I did that. (laughs) Like you would not want to come near me if I did that fast. And I mean, it's just not good for your body. It's going to throw your hormones all out of whack as well. Research does show that it improves weight loss and fat loss, but if you compare it to just a regular calorie-restricted diet, people lose the same amount of weight because of the fact that it's the calories that you're restricting. So if a regular calorie-restricted diet works for you, meaning that you're going to cut back on the added sugars and maybe the added fats and things that you don't really need, that can help along with exercise versus just going through that fast. If the fast is making you miserable, then it's not the right diet for you. I mean, it certainly makes a difference to me as far as it's mood too. So it's not just focus. Now that I think about it, I really need to get back on it (laughs) because it affects my mood. I have noticed that when I go to bed and I'm not full, I'm actually a little bit hungry. I feel better. I sleep better. I wake up much earlier Mm -hmm. and I just am in a really good mood. And I just now put that connection together because I've known it affects my sense of focus and whether or not my brain feels foggy. Mm -hmm. But I forgot, (laughs) true to form, I forgot that it also affects my mood. So I'm Mm going to go back and try it. So Nicole, before I let you go, can you just talk a little bit about gut health and how it might relate to ADHD. And I know this is a really controversial subject. There've been a lot of fights in our group about it, but I think there's been enough research at this point that we should be talking about it. We're not sure yet though, right? There's nothing that's hundred percent. It's related. Um, there's a lot of good research out there that shows that it is related. First of all, 95% of the body's serotonin is found in the gut. So, yeah, 95% is found in the gut. It's like a huge amount. 70% of your immune system is in the gut. Like, what does that mean? 95% of the body's serotonin is found in the gut. Okay, so exactly where is the gut and all that? Okay, so your gut is referred to as your digestive tract. So it starts in the mouth, goes through the esophagus, to the stomach, to the intestines, and then the colon, and then, you know, down to your anus, which is the end of the the body. (laughs) It measures nine meters long from end to end. And when we talk about gut health, we're referring to the health of your digestive tract and the bacteria, fungus, and yeast that lives in it. The gut microbiome is what, you know, it's kind of that hot topic right now. It's made up of 100 trillion bacteria. So everyone has trillions of bacteria in their body right now. And there's several types of bacteria. There's hundreds of different types of strains. And so researchers are just now figuring out how different strains are associated with behavior, including anxiety, stress, stress-related diseases, and even ADHD. And so have you heard of the enteric nervous system? Uh, 
So the enteric nervous system is basically the nervous system or all the nerves that run through your entire digestive tract, and it communicates with the brain through the gut-brain axis. Wow. So if you picture an imaginary line between the brain and the gut, that's your gut-brain axis. And the bacteria that's in your body is actually communicating with your brain. And they've actually found through studies that there's more communication from the microbes to the brain than there is from the brain to the microbes, which shows that they actually have a mind of their own. And so it's actually been called and referred to as the second brain. And I find it extremely fascinating. The enteric nervous system or the gut has over 100 neurons in it. And that's basically more than your spinal cord and your nervous system. It uses 30 transmitters to communicate from the gut to the brain. If you think about digestion and how it basically does it on its own, right? It's, it's automatic. Have you ever felt that feeling of butterflies in your stomach or maybe an upset stomach when you feel nervous? Mm-hmm. Right? That is your enteric nervous system. And so when they give you things like an SSRI, which is, you know, to treat depression or anxiety, that actually increases the level of serotonin in the gut because that's where serotonin is typically found and made is in the gut. So if your gut is not in good shape and you have a lot of inflammation, you have a lot of allergies, you have a lot of sensitivities and you're not eating well, then you're not going to be able to produce these really important neurotransmitters that we need for cognition and for energy and for memory and all these things that are really important for us with ADHD. So, you know, these studies have been done over 100 years now. So I know there's people that might not believe in the gut-brain access, but it's there, it's real. They've been doing this for over 100 years now. And so they're just finding now how these you know, bacteria actually communicate with each other. So when you think about bacteria, what is the bacteria actually doing in the body? So basically, after you eat something, so let's say you eat an apple, it travels through the stomach and the small intestines where it's broken down. The bacteria is actually helping to break down that food and the nutrients into a usable form so that it can be absorbed into the bloodstream. I mean, you don't just eat an apple and then the apple goes into your blood, right? It's broken down and digested into tiny, tiny little molecules like sugar and amino acids from protein. And the vitamins and minerals actually are broken down by the bacteria as well into their smaller usable forms. Indigestible carbs and proteins are fermented. So there's actually fermentation process going on in your body. And it produces things like alcohol. And that's why sometimes people get a lot of gas and bloating when they eat certain foods because it's basically fermenting and it's causing gas to be released into the GI tract. So it's normal to have gas or to feel bloating sometimes. But if you have a lot of excess gas and bloating or diarrhea, constipation, that's a sign that your GI tract is really not working properly and that you really should figure out if you've got some type of sensitivities going on. Now, there's bacteria that also help synthesize micronutrients. So when I say micronutrients, I mean like vitamins and minerals. So like B vitamins, for example, which are essential for energy levels and brain function and metabolism. And what's really important for our ADHD brains is that the bacteria can also make and respond 
to different hormones and neurotransmitters. So there's a neurotransmitter called GABA, and it's the main inhibitory transmitter in the brain. And it helps to block impulses between the nerve cells. So it basically has a calming effect on the body, or that's what they think anyway. And low levels of GABA is related to impaired attention, lack of communication. And then some evidence actually says that taking the synthetic version can be helpful. But then I've also read in some studies that it can be harmful as well because there's certain byproducts. And you really, really need to be careful when you're buying these synthetic versions of supplements on the internet because there's just so much crap that they can add to them. I mean, they're not regulated Mm -hmm. by the FDA. So you really, really have to be careful. There can be a lot of, you know, added heavy metals and toxins and things like that in there that can do more damage to the gut. So if you have certain foods that are going to increase the amount of bacteria in your gut, you want to make sure that it's the good bacteria, right? So I'm sure you've heard of probiotics, Mm -hmm. right? That's kind of a hot topic right now. (laughs) So probiotics are good bacteria. And these are naturally found in fermented foods, things like yogurt, kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, tempeh, natto, miso, kombucha, things like that. Fermented foods have been around for thousands of years. I mean, think about before we had refrigerators, they ate fermented foods. So it's really important for healthy gut. So basically, they, they're the good bacteria. And then there's prebiotics, which feed the good bacteria. And these are the indigestible fibers I talked about earlier. So things that are high in fiber. So if you have things like bananas and apples and oat bran and and whole wheat breads, anything that's high in fiber is going to feed the good bacteria. When you eat sugar, like pure sugar candies and, and cookies and sodas and stuff like that, that's actually feeding the bad bacteria in the body. And when you feed the bad bacteria, that's when you can run into some issues. When that balance is off, you have an increased risk for cognitive issues like memory, energy, and immune function issues as well. So the whole idea, you know, between the gut-brain access and ADHD is what? Basically that diet is much more important to cognition than we thought? Yes, absolutely. So having a balanced diet and eating the right foods is important because, you know, when we think about our brain health, we always think like, okay, our neurotransmitters are there, dopamine is there, serotonin is there, but we don't actually think about where it comes from. Your diet is so important and your gut health is so important. So if you're not eating the right foods, like the, you know, healthy proteins and and getting a variety of vitamins and minerals that are going to help to make these neurotransmitters, then your ADHD symptoms are probably going to be worse. So making sure that your gut is in good shape and that you're, you know, you don't have a lot of inflammation from eating unhealthy foods or from having a lot of toxins in the, in the body from things like excess supplements or just like really crappy foods with added additives and preservatives and things like that, then your gut health will be in better shape and you'll be able to better make those transmitters. And also it'll be able to better communicate with the brain. 
alcohol, I would assume too, right? As far as inflammation, mm-hmm. creating inflammation. Yeah, exactly. Alcohol can create inflammation. But again, I mean, there's so much information. It's like impossible for me to cover. I could do like an entire episode just on gut health. So I'm just kind of scratching the surface of some of the things that are important. But yeah, anything that causes inflammation in the gut is going to affect the brain in some way. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's a really interesting link. So you're saying inflammation affects the brain. It does. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the biggest culprit in all of this is sugar. Is that right? Sugar, you could say that that's probably the number one thing to avoid. Yes, because it's it's affecting the brain on, you know, an immediate level because of the release in dopamine, but it's also affecting it later on when it goes through the, the GI tract and it could possibly be causing inflammation there, which, you know, when you have inflammation in the gut, you're probably not able to make those neurotransmitters. So yes, it could be affecting it you know, primarily and also secondary as well. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, my biggest takeaway is if you want your brain to optimally function, get rid of as much of the simple processed garbage, basically sugar, you know, that you Mm -hmm. can from your diet. Yes, definitely. I mean, and for so many other reasons, just inflammation can cause so many other things like increased risk for diabetes, heart disease, cancer, but it would also affect the brain. So absolutely. Got it. Okay. Before I let you go, thank you so much, by the way, I want to know what is your number one ADHD workaround? I would say right now, the biggest thing that's helped me is adding every single thing that I need to do into the calendar on my phone. (laughs) If I don't add it in my calendar, it didn't happen or it's not happening. (laughs) You know, of course, I'll think of things that I need to do, but I put everything on there, even just, you know, if I need to call someone or if I need to buy something at the grocery store, it all goes into my phone. Does it go into your calendar app or do you have a special app that you use that then talks to your calendar? No, I just use like the app right on my iPhone because it syncs to my computer. And so then if I'm on my computer and I'm not looking at my phone, I'll still get the notification pop up on my MacBook that says that I have, you know, an alert will pop up that says I need to do something. And do you have a policy that you're not allowed to wait? You have to do it right then and there because otherwise you forget. (laughs) I try so hard. And that's one of the things that me and my husband always get into because he's like, no, we're doing something. I'm like, yes, but I have to do it now or else I'll forget. (laughs) Absolutely. Right. Right. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And it can even be like a minute. Literally. And, you know, I have this problem with my Apple Watch where I will have an alarm and then the, you have two options. You can either stop the alarm or you can, oh, what do they call it? Not pause it, but it'll come back. You know, it'll remind you again. So it keeps bothering you. And I can't tell you how many times I'll say, oh, I can remember I'm walking over there and I'll shut it off. And then literally in the process of walking there, I get distracted by something else. So now my policy is. I can only shut it off when I'm right there, literally in the process of doing it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. I hear you on that. 
I can't open my emails unless I'm going to respond to it right then and there, because otherwise it just gets lost in my inbox. Yeah. I was just talking about that actually in an episode that's going to come right before your episode. So yes, about procrastination and (laughs) the tools that we can use to um, make sure that we get done what we need to get done. Anyway, Nicole, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. So where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? So I have a website. It's www.nicoledemasi.com. And that's N-I-C-O-L-E-D-E-M-A-S-I.com. And there you can learn more about me. You can also check out my blog where I have you know information on all different types of topics. But I've also created a special web page just for your listeners. So that that's yeah, because it's a lot of information. And because of my ADHD brain, I feel like I was a little bit all over the place which is, I guess, common. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> okay. But to me, I was because that's, you know, perfectionism. And so if you go to nicoledemasi.com backslash ADHD, I'll have a download for you guys where you can look at my top tips for ADHD nutrition so that all this information that you just heard me spew will be in a nice, you know, neat format for you to download. And thank you so much. That is absolutely fabulous. You've basically synthesized everything that we've talked about here and made it specific, right? To exactly our brains. Yes. Yes. And I'll, I'll include on, on each tip, how it relates to our ADHD brains so that, you know, in case I forgot to include anything while we were talking today, it's all there for you. (laughs) Wonderful. Now you said NicoleDemassey.com. You said backslash ADHD. Did you mean forward slash ADHD? Yeah, probably. I forget. I mix those two up all the time. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen backslash, but I could be wrong, which is why I wanted to check. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you again, Nicole. Uh, This is a long one, but I think it's well worth it. I really, again, appreciate your time here with us today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. So that's what I have for you for this week. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like this episode with Nicole, please let us know by leaving us a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD so that we can help as many women as we possibly can learn just how brilliant their ADHD brains are. And your reviews, well, they help in that regard. For me, they are like those little gold stars we used to get on our work when we were kids in school. One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message or reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. 
I spy a happier life for us. And I'll see you again next week.